This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. January 7th, 2018 was a good day to host an awards show in Los Angeles. It was sunny, warm. The Golden Globes got started at five o'clock sharp. Good evening, ladies and remaining gentlemen. The host that year was Seth Meyers. Tonight, welcome to the 75th annual Golden Globes and Happy New Year, Hollywood. As soon as he got on stage, it was clear that there was going to be this thread running through the whole night, a comedic reckoning with sexual harassment. Marijuana is finally allowed and sexual harassment finally isn't. A laundry list of allegations against Harvey Weinstein had been made public a few months earlier. The legal case against him was just getting started. And outside the Beverly Hilton that night, on the red carpet, the chatter was all about this way women in Hollywood were responding. I could not spot a celebrity not wearing black tonight, standing strong with victims of sexual abuse. Many actresses had arrived for the Globes, dressed head to toe in black. And many of the men, they were wearing these pins that read simply, Time's Up. This moment feels historic. This has never happened before on this scale. I just remember thinking, like, that sounds good, I guess. <laughs> but I didn't know what it would mean in the end, you know? It's a really weird framework to impose on any discussion of sexual harassment, right? Because it sort of presupposes that there <laughs> there was a time when that was fine. <laughs> but now your time is up. I called up Slate's Lily Loofborough to talk about the birth of Time's Up the other day. Maybe it's realistic. Maybe it's a pragmatic approach to the whole question. But yeah, it is a little bit strange. I wanted to see if the way this organization got its start shed any light on the way it has since collapsed with its CEO and board all disbanding over the last few weeks. Lily says, when it began, Time's Up seemed to have this grassroots energy. It was a product of the biggest GoFundMe campaign, I think, in history, maybe. Like, I think by the time it, it got started, there were maybe, I don't know, $22 million or something that had been or donated to the cause. This money was meant to be used for all kinds of things. A legal defense fund for victims of sexual harassment, a foundation that would research equitable workplaces, along with a policy arm. And that arm is the one that I have been reporting on. And it has had a lot of turnover from the beginning, like a shocking amount of turnover. It, the, the organization is only three years old, right? Um, and and it, it has gone through three CEOs in those three years. It's funny because I look at this organization a little bit and its complicated structure, and I have this question, which is like, was Time's Up about changing things for women or changing things for women in Hollywood? 
or in Washington? Like, who was it for? Um, I think it was intended to be for women in general and not women in Hollywood from the beginning. I think that had obvious shortfalls in practice just because the priorities of women in Hollywood who were involved with Time's Up kept eclipsing some of the longer-term priorities that were meant to benefit all survivors everywhere, regardless of their status or connections. Today on the show, why it seems like time is up for Time's Up. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of the selling points of Time's Up when it launched was that you had all these powerful women using their networks on behalf of survivors. Star producer Shonda Rhimes, who helped found Time's Up, she was quoted as saying, if this group of women can't fight for a model for other women who don't have as much power and privilege, then who can? But Lily says, this idea, it sounds good on paper, but in practice, no one seemed to know what that meant. I talked to about eight people who had worked with Time's Up in some capacity, either as staff or as volunteers, all people who had left. The thing that they all said was that there was not a clear sense of what the organization was doing. And they really felt that there was... There were often good intentions, but there was a kind of fuzziness strategically that made it impossible for many of them to really understand what they were doing and why. So what were these staffers doing all day if they weren't clear what they should be doing? Well, <laughs> I think in many cases they were responding to these kind of emergencies that would arise as a result of internal texting among, you know, the, the more powerful networkers involved in the organization. So one example was um, Gail King uh, became the focus of a lot of anger after Kobe Bryant died because she asked about um, the sexual assault allegations against him. And so there was a big pile on against her. And because she evidently had some friends and time's up, um, a mandate came down to put all the day's priorities on pause in order to support Gail King. That was now the mission. So there were tweets and they launched a petition in support of her and a couple of other things. But what staff said was that it seemed arbitrary and disruptive and everything that they had been working towards was kind of like slammed shut. And that was no longer a priority because there was an emergency that came from a powerfully connected woman in need of support. And that that seemed to be the priority over the kind of less connected survivors that the organization was like ostensibly founded to serve, right, was the unconnected. What did these women feel like they should be doing where their higher-ups were maybe telling them, don't do that? Well, one person said that they really thought that Time's Up should have extended the work that it was doing in New York, which it worked with, you know, some politicians there, including Senator Alessandra Biaggi, to try to 
pass laws that would help hold companies accountable, that would help extend the statute of limitation on things like sexual harassment and other offenses. Um, and that there were other states where that kind of thinking and that kind of strategic goal was was possible. But they never really got very far with that plan. And instead, there often was a kind of swerve towards, I don't know, I guess what one might describe as signaling work, right? Um a lingua franca sweater that was like a, a brand partnership with Time's Up that said Time's Up on it or, you know, a pendant, um, this kind of thing. So they were kind of selling trinkets instead of actually getting into the guts of legislation and getting real work done that might actually benefit more women. Yeah. Or, you know, pressuring politicians for particular policy goals that would serve you know, again, unconnected survivors. And and here too, there was a perception among some of the people who I spoke to that whereas they understood the role of Time's Up to be, you know, to develop its own set of priorities and then pressure politicians to align with those. Functionally, sometimes it seemed like leadership was more inclined to consult with Democratic politicians, especially before taking a hard line on any particular policy stance. So they felt that it was kind of backwards, right? Rather than being able to exert pressure as an advocacy organization, they were first having to clear the priorities they had decided were important with the politicians who they were ostensibly going to pressure. It's interesting because I think anyone who's had any experience with nonprofits where they often have a board that's made up of people who are wealthy or influencers in some way, is kind of familiar with the dynamic that's being talked about here, but it seems like the dynamic is like on speed because Time's Up had so many of these people involved in leadership roles. Like they had a 71-person global leadership council that was like Janelle Monet was on it and you know Reese Witherspoon was on it. And so First of all, that's just a lot of people (laughs) weighing in on what you do day to day, but a lot of really powerful people. And so to me, it really seems like what you're putting your finger on is something that could be just a normal part of nonprofit life, but instead is like in hyperdrive. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, what some of the people who actually had experience in nonprofits said to me, um, which again, I... uh, I have to emphasize a lot of people in the founding organization did not. Like they didn't work in nonprofits before doing this work. Yeah. But people who had (laughs) and who came on board said that they were kind of shocked by the fact that um, in lieu of, for example, like policies that would take care of conflicts of interest, right? (laughs) Policies that are very well known across the board in the nonprofit world and that are, you know, sort of clearly delineated in order to prevent embarrassing juxtapositions or, you know, things that that look bad just were not put into place. And instead, um, a kind of language of of sisterhood was invoked and of mutual trust that devolved into some some strange decision-making by the organization that didn't always make it appear in the best light. Hmm. Can you give an example of when because it's not that the people you talked to didn't want to message. They wanted to message a lot of times, but sometimes they were even prevented from doing that. Can you tell me a story of when people you spoke to were prevented from intervening where they thought maybe Time's Up should have spoken out? 
So uh, during the Democratic primary, there was famously a moment, right, when Elizabeth Warren challenged Michael Bloomberg to release women from NDAs. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? That was a kind of an electric moment during that primary. And non-disclosure agreements, you may or may not recall, were kind of a big item in the Me Too conversation, especially in Hollywood, because they were so often used by powerful actors to effectively silence people who'd been victimized. So it was an important tenet of, I think, Me Too's conventional wisdom and of Time's Up in in particular, that non-disclosure agreements needed to go. So Warren calling for that seemed entirely consistent with Time's Up's mission to a lot of, you know, junior staffers. And so they wanted to tweet in support of her. But they were prevented from doing so. Why? The reason given was that it was uh, impolitic to show bias in favor of a particular candidate. Huh. But um, when Bloomberg did release some women from those NDAs, Time's Up did praise him. So. That is a weird tension. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That strange and maybe tone-deaf decision-making, it was also present within Time's Up internal operations, Lily says. And last summer, as protests for racial justice dominated the public conversation, Time's Up employees, like those at many organizations, started to look inwards. A little more than a dozen staffers started meeting on the weekends, and they drafted a letter to management about what they felt was wrong with the organization. A dozen might not sound like a lot, but Time's Up has only got 25 full-time employees. Some people felt tokenized by comments from Time's Up leadership. But this letter, it ended up sprawling into all kinds of other problems the group had as well. Including the fact that there was a real problem in workplace culture, which left everybody feeling very disempowered and sad. And women of color, a few, said that they didn't actually feel very comfortable or safe bringing concerns forward, um, particularly to the human resources consultant. And many felt that when there were conflicts between managers and staff, the result tended to be that the staff would receive coaching. The staff would receive coaching? Yeah, that was one of the complaints that was listed. Not the managers. Not the managers. So a lot of people felt kind of weirdly repressed and and unable to speak freely in an organization that was ostensibly about not silencing women. And there was a lot of despair about a sort of what seemed like an unfixable culture. They couldn't figure out how to break through. When we come back, how accusations of sexual harassment against Andrew Cuomo signaled the demise of Time's Up, as it was known. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
So I started to realize Time's Up was in real trouble when Andrew Cuomo was forced to resign as governor of New York because there began to be these reports that he was connected with the organization and had leaned on them for advice, especially when the first accusations came out about him. And he was in the midst of trying to aggressively push back against those. Can you tell the story of what happened in in just the last year or so with this organization? Yeah. Time's Up had been working with Cuomo, right, on some of this legislation and with Biagi, who was the one who actually drafted it. Right, because it was this kind of irony that Cuomo was being accused of sexual harassment, but he had brought forward all of this sexual harassment legislation. Exactly so. And he'd been very loud about his partnerships with Time's Up. Um, So when he signed the legislation, his office made sure to invite Time's Up people, but not Biagi, the senator who actually drafted the legislation because she had been a prominent critic of Cuomo's. But he was very, I think, strategic about emphasizing his links two times up. So it emerged in the investigations the attorney general did that Roberta Kaplan, the chairwoman of Time's Up, had been um, advising Cuomo on a particular allegation uh, made by Lindsay Boylan. And in particular, Cuomo's office had been thinking about drafting this letter that would, according to the New York Times, quote unquote, smear Boylan, basically to try to delegitimize her claims. And while most of the people who were consulted about the letter considered it to be a bad idea, what the attorney general's investigation found was that Kaplan herself seemed to think that with a few changes, it would be fine. So it would appear that on background, the chairwoman of Time's Up was advising a governor accused of sexual harassment on how to smear a victim of harassment that he himself had been guilty of, or at least been accused of. Um, She was also representing Goldman Sachs in a kind of a similar capacity. And when the investigation started, Melissa DeRosa, who was, you know, kind of one of Cuomo's most important aides and has been accused of enabling a lot of the abuses that have since come out in his office, Kaplan started representing DeRosa, Melissa DeRosa, in the course of that investigation, too. So at every turn, I think, when there could have been distance, um, there was instead an inclination to move closer to Cuomo and to the unfolding disaster that, that seemed to be underway there. Here's the thing, hearing this story, which is Democrats in New York used to have this thing that they would say about Cuomo where, like, he's our bad guy kind of thing. He's our jerk. And so I feel like when I hear this story, I hear the leaders of Time's Up making that same calculation in their heads. Like, well, I guess, you know, he's advocating for us. And so, you know, we can stand by him on this thing. But it, re- it really does show the problem with building your organization on responding to people in power versus people who aren't in power. And like that was a really key part of how the organization was founded. I, he- I heard it described as a grass tops approach as opposed to grassroots. Hmm. The idea was very specifically like we're going to talk to the leaders and, we're, and that's going to help us make change faster. Yes. But 
this is where that all falls down <laughs> to me. No, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, Tina Chen, to her credit, was was explicit about the fact that that was one of the advantages, right, that Time's Up had. <laughs> like that it was filled with, you know, people with power and influence who could try to use that. So in practice, you know, a lot of staffers had questions about how that was actually working and whether anything was actually being achieved. But I think you're right. Like, I think the understanding of how Time's Up could best serve <laughs> was in some sense tangled up with the fact that power is has a very hard time turning against power. It was not long before those in power at Time's Up had to deal with the contradictions they were creating. This August, when a group of survivors published an open letter pointing out these kinds of contradictions, Chairwoman Roberta Kaplan resigned the same day. And Lily says she didn't exactly apologize for the bulk of the complaints the staff had raised. So her explanation was essentially that she could not discuss the details of those cases and sustain an active law practice while also serving as chairwoman. So it was it was in the vein of, yes, for the good of the organization, I will step down. And then about three weeks later, Tina Chen, the CEO, stepped down too. And what did she say her reasoning was? Well, what had happened in the intervening weeks was that it had emerged that Chen had also consulted on that letter, uh, that perspective letter to Smear Lindsay Boylan. So it turned out that Kaplan had not been alone in that endeavor. So... Um, Given that revelation, Chen stepped down. I mean, Tina Chen, who was the CEO, seems to be on this redemption tour right now, where she's basically saying, you know, time's up is young and, you know, give it some time. You know, the problem is old here. And I wonder how what she's saying sounds to you. Like, do you think this organization can be redeemed? Um, I think it will take some very visionary people (laughs) to repopulate the strange and compromised kind of space it now holds in the public imagination with something genuinely new and hopeful. Um, I don't think that means it cannot be done, but it sounds like there is a lot of just run-of-the-mill disillusionment, a lot of sadness that even this organization, whose mission was to improve the work culture for American women, and I suppose all women, um, couldn't even manage to run its own workplace in a way that was mutually satisfactory and and. Um, and and made the people involved feel valued and heard. That stinks, you know? (laughs) Because there's a lot of brilliance and talent that went into all that, and it is very dispiriting that a lot of small, incremental, not even particularly scandalous decisions accrued to create this kind of, like, really uninspiring, difficult morass of bad feeling. It's a mess. Yeah. There's like no better word for it. It's just a, it just seems like a mess from the outside. I know. And there were a lot of good intentions. That's what's so sad. You know, like it is really sad. It's just it's it's really sad. Lily Loofborough, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Lily Loofborough is a staff writer for Slate. 
And that's the show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, Danielle Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down whenever you want on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.